Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. Speaker for today, um, she is my friend, Nancy Pyron. She's coming on up. Uh, Nancy moved here just a few years ago. I'm going to let her tell us all about it. Um, but she has been such a blessing to me. And if you don't know Nancy, I want you to get to know her. Uh, hopefully, you'll you'll come and talk to her today. So let's let's pray for Nancy and let her introduce herself to us. Oh God, we are so grateful for the ways that you bring us together in your providence and your timing. We're so thankful that that Nancy is with us here at TBC. And I pray, God, that you would speak powerfully through her. I know you have. You have been speaking to her and teaching her as she studied this text alongside of us. Would you help us to listen to listen for you as she speaks? And would you give her courage and give her wisdom and give her help, the help that she needs? Uh, we love you, God. We thank you. And uh, we just give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Well, good morning. I moved here almost uh, four years ago. It'll be four years in um, March. I moved from Alabama. Uh, I had lived there for like 48 years, pretty much in the same house for over 40 years. Um, I have two daughters, one in Virginia and one in Texas. And many of you may know my daughter, Beth Mixon. I moved here to be with the Mixon family. And I realized several years ago that I really, really, truly needed to make a change and to be closer to family. And so I could go to Texas or I could go to Virginia. So I chose Texas. <laughs> uh, but amazingly, God chose Texas for me. Uh, there's no doubt about that, because he so amazingly orchestrated my move here. And I can even tell you sometime how that even came about. But it was amazing. And so um, anyway, uh, oh, the picture here is a picture of myself and my husband, uh, we were married for 40 years. Um, some of you may recognize that was like done at a church directory. <laughs> Does that bring back memories? And so that's probably about 25 or 30 years ago. Um, we were married for 40 years. Uh, he went home to be with the Lord in 2005. So I've been a widow for a number of years. And so um, I have... Uh, there is a Texas family on the left and a Virginia family on the right. Uh, that's Tim and Beth Mixon here in uh, Temple with daughters Caroline, uh, Abby, and Anna Grace. And a matter of fact, we had two weddings this year uh, in 2021, which was just amazing. So I have two new grandsons, uh, RJ and, and Zach. So, and then on the other side is my Virginia family, the Narancis family out, outside of Leesburg in Lovettsville, Virginia. And that's Greg, Shannon. Greg's grandchild is 20 years old. So, uh, I am just very blessed. So, um, and it was interesting, after I'd been here about a year, my son-in-law, Tim, asked me what had surprised me the most about living in Texas, because I... Actually, I never, ever dreamed that I would be living in Texas, although we visited there many times. And I said, well, 
a number of things, but one especially. I knew y'all liked Mexican food, (laughs) but I had no idea how much you loved Mexican food and how often you ordered it over and over. And it's just a huge, I mean, I, I love Mexican food, but coming from the deep south of Alabama, it was just that soul food that I grew up with and that kind of thing. So, um, and my tastes are definitely becoming a little more adjusted to spice. So, uh, it's been all good. So, it's been wonderful to be here. So, this week, we're going to be talking, and I know you discussed it all in your lessons today, but Acts 6 and 7 center on the ministry and martyrdom of Stephen. And so we're going to see Stephen in four areas, as the servant, as the witness, as the judge, and as the martyr. So the mission of the apostles is to proclaim the good news of salvation in Jesus to the lost, beginning in Jerusalem and then to the farthest parts of the earth. And you know, the Sanhedrin had made it very clear in chapters 4 and 5 that the apostles are to stop preaching the good news of salvation through what they were saying was the risen Messiah, Jesus Christ. Well, the disciples were not intimidated. They made it clear that they intended to keep on preaching Jesus. They even rejoiced that it was a privilege to suffer for the name of Jesus. They prayed for greater boldness to proclaim the gospel, and God responded. In Acts 5.42, Luke writes, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So the church began to grow, but it began to experience growing pains. And this was making it difficult for the apostles to minister to everyone. So the Grecians were those Greek-speaking Jews who had come to Palestine from other nations and therefore may not have spoken Aramaic, while the Hebrews were Jewish residents of the land who spoke Aramaic and Greek. And you know, after I moved here, I kept looking at bumper stickers, and it kept saying, native-born, native-born, you know, and I thought, that's really interesting. And so, and then I noticed that others said, I wasn't born in Texas, but I got here as fast as I could. (laughs) And you will not believe when I've met new people and they'd said, well, you got here as fast as you could. So anyway, I thought that was just really interesting. And so in 6.1, Luke writes, now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And the fact that the outsiders were being neglected created a situation that could have divided the church. The apostles were Galileans, and they were native Hebraic Jews. Beyond one's place of birth and language, there were other distinctions between these two groups. There were cultural differences. And you know, there were many synagogues there, and these Hellenistic Jews met for the teaching and fellowship in those synagogues, and people of the same birth, language, and culture. It was only a natural way for them to be together. 
So the native Jews may have been in the majority. They may at least have had other advantages over the other, others. You see, this was really their turf. They were the ones who could and would speak with greater authority. But the growth of the church was one reason why the number of widows in the church cared for became large. Many of the Hellenistic Jews had come to Jerusalem for the feasts. Possibly their resources of the widows was a great concern. While we're not told all the ways uh, in which the Greek-speaking widows were overlooked, it's not difficult to imagine some possibilities. Maybe the feeding tables were set up too far in Jerusalem proper that they could reach it. Um, maybe they lived too far away, and let's face it, there were no meals on wheels in that point, time and point. So perhaps the language played a part. So the discrepancy in the care of the widows does not seem to be intentional on the part of the native Jews. But the apostles handled the problem with great wisdom and did not give Satan any foothold in the fellowship. Now, we're not given all the details of the entire process, but only of its conclusion. The apostles called the believers together to announce the solution they had reached. They first set aside any expectation that the 12 should neglect the teaching of the word in order to pers personally correct the neglect of the widows. They were going to delegate. And so they laid down the requirements of those to whom they were going to ask. The men of the church chose seven men. The apostles do not specify that these men, they did specify that they had to be highly qualified, good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, so that the apostles could devote themselves to ministry of the word. Now, the apostles do not specify that these men had to be Greek-speaking Jews, but yet the names of all seven are Greek names. Stephen is named first, and that he is further described as a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and the second is Philip. It is these two men, Stephen and Philip, who will greatly contribute to the advance of the gospel, not only in this service, but in spreading the gospel as a witness that we're going to see here, but we're even going to see in Philip's life later. And, you know, Temple Bible Church has wonderful ministries to the widows. The new song Bible study on Wednesdays is focused on the widows in our area, not only meeting spiritual needs, but they give very practical helps to so many in need. And also our deacons are assigned a widow to check on her and the deacons host a wonderful lunch in our honor each year. And, you know, even though I live only a block from my family, it is a great blessing to know that my deacon family is only a call away. So back in my Bible church in Alabama, I was greatly cared for during the time of my husband's illness and his death by the friends, by that church body, uh, by the deacon body, certainly the body of Christ showed up in amazing, amazing ways. And, you know, I can't say enough, being a widow, how much that type of contact brings security and comfort. Uh, and, you know, for me personally, as a widow, 
there are a couple of areas that are really, they're, they're a struggle. And it really would be a struggle for anyone that becomes single again, for whatever situation that could be. But mine is being content and being single and trusting in whatever God has for me in the future. And, you know, one of my favorite verses is in Psalm 34, 18, because God is close to those crushed in spirit. And if you've never done a trail of Scripture through the Psalms, believe me, it is so well worth it. So it's a huge adjustment when a physical protection is removed from a woman's life when she loses a spouse. It's more, it's a lot of things, but it's that real physical protection that is missing. And you know, a few Sundays ago, I was really encouraged by Dave Tate, you know, studying in the book of Ezra. Uh, he reminded us that God uses discouragement and disappointment to reshape us but not to destroy us and to bring about a dependence on God. And that's where we all need to be, whatever the circumstances are, that he is going to challenge us to become more dependent on him. Well, looking at these seven men in Acts 6, we usually call them deacons, but this title is actually not given to them in this specific scripture. But we do see in Philippians 1, and in 1 Timothy 3, that they uh, are called deacons. And, of course, this truly means servant. So now we're going to see Stephen as a servant. And so he was humble, and the emphasis in his life is on fullness. He was full of the Holy Spirit, wisdom, full of faith, full of power. And in Scripture, to be full means to be controlled by. This man was controlled by the Spirit and his faith and the power, his wisdom. He was God-controlled, absolutely yielded in this point in time. So what was the result? The blessing of God continued and increased. The church was unified. They multiplied. It was magnified. And it's been estimated that there were 8,000 Jewish priests attached to that temple ministry in Jerusalem proper, and many were becoming obedient to the faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And I so appreciated when Allie, a couple of weeks ago, talked about community in chapter 2. I think that more than just at serving tables for the widows, that was certainly done. But can't you think how the Holy Spirit was just prompted those men to think of new and creative ways to serve those widows. It wasn't just feeding tables. So now we see Stephen as the witness, and that's in verses 8 through 15. He did not limit his ministry to the serving of tables. He had won the lost and even did miracles because up to this point, it was the apostles who performed the miracles, but God now gave this power to Stephen also. This was part of God's plan to use Stephen to bear witness of the leaders to the leaders of Israel. So his testimony would be the climax of the church's witness to the Jews. And then the message is going to go out to the Samaritans and to the Gentiles. But opposition, arguments come now from certain 
Greek-speaking synagogues. We see here that the Greek-speaking Jews are strongly opposing the preaching of this fellow Greek-speaking Jew because his teaching and his preaching may have taken place in some of these synagogues. Saul, who we, of course, know as Paul, may very well have been among them in these particular synagogues. And at first, these men sought to oppose Stephen by debating with him. But now Stephen was not smarter, he wasn't better educated, or he wasn't a better debater than these Jewish leaders. The difference was that he had the Holy Spirit. That was why he was speaking like he was. So their debating or their arguments, it didn't work. But you know, desperate men turn to more desperate measures. And their treatment of Stephen parallels the way the Jewish leaders treated Jesus. First, they hired those false witnesses to testify against him. Then they stirred up the people who accused him of attacking the law of Moses and the temple. And next, their attack was to accuse Stephen of teaching that Jesus would set aside the customs handed down to them by Moses. They were very jealous over their law. He was accused of speaking blasphemous words about Moses and God, demeaning the temple, the law. He simply taught that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law and the temple. You see, Jesus is the substance, and they never recognized that. And all those things that they worshipped, all the things that they um, depended on were just shadows. They were truly just shadows. And so this passage is a great reminder that we must tell everyone, you don't have to go to a temple. You don't have to go to a building. You meet God. Uh, You must go to God personally through Jesus. And for forgiveness, that has to only come through Jesus and the work of his, his work on the cross. So Stephen was surprised and arrested right while he was ministering. And he was taken before the same council that had tried Jesus and the apostles. And in verse 15, there's a transition here to the next scene. Because while Stephen is being unjustly treated, his face became like that, the face of an angel. I would just think that would be a radiance. The leaders accused him of demeaning Moses. Yet Stephen is reflecting the likeness of Moses who had to cover his own face with the veil because it shone so brightly after he spent time in the presence of God. And then next, we're going to see Stephen the judge. This is the longest address or sermon in the book of Acts. In it, Stephen reviewed the entire history of Israel and the contributions that were made by their very revered leaders, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon, but this sermon was more than just a list of familiar facts. It was disproving the indictments against Stephen and showing them their own national sins. You see, he was not proving, uh, seeking to prove his innocence. He rather, he is strongly indicting them, his accusers for their guilt. So Stephen proved from their own scriptures that the Jewish nation was guilty of worse sins than those they had accused him of committing. So what were these sins? Because Stephen made this response because the high priest had said, 
are these things so? Well, first of all, they misunderstood their spiritual roots. You see, Stephen's sermon opens with the glory of God and closes with the glory of God. Israel was the only nation privileged to have the glory of God as a part of its inheritance. Not all those other nations, whatever they believed in, all those little gods. The glory of God had departed first from the tabernacle that we learned back in 1 Samuel 4, and then later in the temple itself in Ezekiel chapter 10. You see, God's glory had come in his Son, and they had not recognized that God himself was walking among them. And, you know, in John 1, 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and he beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The nation had rejected Jesus. They had rejected their Messiah. They had not recognized that the God of glory, when he walked, actually among them. So the Jews greatly revered Abraham and all of their ancestors and Moses, and they prided themselves to be children of Abraham. But they confused a physical descent with spiritual experience and depended on their national heritage rather than their personal faith. You see, they were blind to the simple faith of Abraham, and they cluttered it up with man-made traditions that made salvation a matter of good works, not faith. You see, God has no grandchildren. Each of us have to come to God through Jesus Christ, whether that's, you know, children need to understand that just because they're raised in a Christian home, that they each and every person has to come uh, humbly and believe So the Jews of Stephen's day seem to have concluded that the temple in Jerusalem was the only dwelling place of God. To speak against this holy place, they said, then was to blaspheme. It was as though God would no longer be present with men in in Jerusalem and in the temple if it was destroyed. He was reminding them that God appeared to his people at many, many other times and times have passed. And in verse 48, Stephen tells them, the most high God does not dwell in houses made by human hands. And even King Solomon in 1 Kings on the dedication of the temple had also reminded the children of Israel that God does not dwell in houses made by human hands. But they prided themselves not only in the the temple, the building, but in their circumcision. They were failing to understand that it was symbolic of an inner spiritual relationship with God. Another sin, they disobeyed their law. Stephen showed them their history that they had repeatedly broken the law. No sooner had the people received the law at the time of Moses, they disobeyed it by asking Aaron to make them an idol and thereby thereby broke the first, first two of the Ten Commandments. He tells them that they are the lawbreakers and they have rejected the righteous one who is himself the law fulfiller. He even calls the crowd murderers. Another sin, they disrespected the temple. In many ways, they despised the temple. 
God had given them the tabernacle where God's glory graciously dwelled, and then Solomon was graciously built the temple, and eventually we even learned in First and Second Kings how idols were actually brought into the temple. So another sin, they stubbornly resisted their God and his truth. Verses 51 through 53, this is the climax of Stephen's speech that cut to their hearts. Israel had refused to submit to God and obey the truths he had revealed to them. Their ears didn't hear, their hearts did not receive the truth, and they certainly had not bowed to the truth. So as a result, they killed their own Messiah. By the time Jesus came to earth, their truth was encrusted with so much tradition that the people could not recognize God's truth when he did present it. They didn't recognize Jesus himself as the truth. So finally, we see Stephen the martyr. He is certainly not pleading for his life here. You see, he's pressing charges against his accusers, for it is they who have blasphemed God. It is they and their ancestors who have rebelled against Moses and the prophets. They're a stubborn people, just as God had often said of them before. Can you imagine what it looked like from Stephen's vantage point? Here he was before this audience of the Sanhedrin, the highest Jewish court in the land. These men were the religious and political giants of the land. No doubt they were all about maintaining appearances. So they would probably dress in a very dignified manner, distinguished manner, and sit with great dignity and composure. But they were probably looking straight at Stephen. His message was not subtle. It was clear. It was condemning. And worse yet, it was irrefutable. There was no way to engage in the debate. These men gave way to savage and primitive impulses. They were cut to the quick. They gnashed their teeth at Stephen. Stephen had to know what lay ahead. Luke tells us what enabled Stephen to continue to stand fast, dying in a way that underscored the truth of his faith and of his sermon. He was full of spirit. Stephen looked into heaven, which opened for him, showing him what lay ahead. He beheld the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Jesus was standing for Philip. I think that's really special. Because of modern technology, we have been confronted by the terrible images of hostages pleading for their lives as they face death at the hoods of hooded terrorists. The Sanhedrin would have no such pleasure. It would be quite the opposite. Stephen told his exec executioners what he saw as he looked up into heaven. Look, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This was more than they could take. They covered their ears and rushed at him. After driving out of him out of the city, they stoned him. Luke gives Stephen the last word, and one cannot miss the similarities between Stephen's words at his death and those of our Lord's at the time of his death. Into your hands I receive my spirit. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Stephen says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying that, he fell asleep. 
You know, in Acts 8.1, Saul, it tells us, Saul was there at that awful scene. And according to Acts 22.20, Saul never forgot this moment. And Paul penned these words in 1 Timothy 1.15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. The murder of Stephen was that catalyst, that was the impetus, that caused the believers to get out of Jerusalem to flee and for the gospel to spread. Saul would become truly an answer to Stephen's prayer. Paul would receive forgiveness through Jesus. So for us to remember God is sovereign over persecution and Jesus can save the worst of sinners. You know, the word of Colossians 3, 2, and 3 could have been written about the life of Stephen, even though it's very, it applies to all believers. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. Stephen's life, and even more so his death, should be an example of how every believer should strive to believe. To live, committed to the Lord even in the face of death, faithful to preach the gospel boldly, knowledge, be knowledgeable of God's truth, know what scripture says, and willing to be used by God for his plan and purpose. Stephen's testimony still stands as a beacon, a light to a lost and dying world. And I love this quote by Greg Groeschel. It says, Christians often perceive obedience to God as some test designed just to see if we're really committed to him. But what if it's designed as God's way of giving us what is best for us? Let us pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you most of all for your written word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that illumines, that as we read it, you illumine us, that you teach us. Father, I just ask that we speak more boldly, that we be more courageous. And I pray this in our precious son's name. Amen. Thank you, Nancy. Will you all help me thank Nancy?